You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents The History of Being Black. Welcome to another episode of The History of Being Black. I am your host, Eunice Elliott. I am joined this week by one of our, I will say, one of my favorite former guests, uh, Roy S. Johnson, longtime colleague and uh, a man about town. When you want to talk about Black folks, especially Black folks in sports, this is who you want to talk to. So welcome back to the program, Roy. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Eunice. Uh, former guest, huh? Is that what you say? A former guest? Oh, you've, been on, you've been a guest on the show. You know, you'll be a future guest. I'll just call you a friend of the show, right? So uh, okay. I know you're friend of Eunice. So you have a long storied history and career in sports. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. You know, I, I am so blessed to have pretty much had a courtside seat at what at least I believe stands as uh, perhaps the, the most transformational era of sports. I began covering sports in the late 70s and, and did it on a day-to-day basis through the 80s and peripherally into the 90s. So I began covering the NBA at a time when the NBA wasn't quite at the level of the uh, Major League Baseball and football. And there were, there were not many black reporters who were covering pro sports in general. If you know uh, some of the early sports writers, they they broke in on early black sports writers, they broke in on baseball. Break baseball was the American pastime. That was the holy grail of covering sports. So you had you know the iconic you know, black sports sports writers who covered that sport. And then the next generation covered baseball and a little bit of the NFL. I was part of a group that came along when the NBA was starting to be, you know, that black league. And so we better put some black people on it. So myself, Ralph Wiley, who worked at Sports Illustrated, Michael Wilbon at the time was at the Washington Post, a guy by the name of Brian Burwell, uh, who was at uh, the New York Daily News, a reporter in Chicago, Detroit. We were that, that wave of black writers that began watching the NBA at a time when Julius Serving, Bob Lanier, some names that a lot of you know, viewers and listeners maybe haven't heard of. But then along came this way, this guy called Irvin Magic Johnson, and along with this guy named Larry Bird, and then came an Isaiah Thomas, and there was this new way that was Dominique Wilkins. And all of a sudden, the NBA became a national sport. People can't remember that the Magic's rookie year, when they played the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA Finals, the finals were on tape delay. They weren't even on, they were, they were not even live. That's how devalue the NBA was. So I was able to cover that sport through the bird magic era. Also able to cover tennis uh, from, from I, I just missed Borg. So between, you know, Mats Wielander, John McEnroe, uh, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova, Zena Garrison, and all the way up through Steffi Graf. Uh, and then in college basketball, was able to you know cover what I still think was the the greatest game of all time, you know Villanova versus Georgetown in the you know NCAA championship, one of the biggest upsets in championship history. I was there courtside, so uh, you know got to know guys like John Thompson, John Chaney, uh, who all went on uh, just in the last few months. But you know I, I have no complaints. I, I've had I, I was able to watch sports evolve from courtside, but also away from the court as well at a time when America was changing. 
too. So in addition to the actual sport, and you mentioned NBA specifically and Black folks uh, being in the NBA, tell me about the difference about just the American athlete, how they are so much more, so much more is required of them, I think, in the media, but so much more of them is shared. How, how have you seen that transition from when you started uh, to how it is now? Athletes have always been at the forefront of social change, uh, in my view. If you start with a, a Jackie Robinson, who, of course, you know, is on the Mount Rushmore of, of Black athletes. You know, people talk about him being the first and they don't give enough credit to what he had to, to do on a day-to-day basis to continue that legacy, to ensure that other Black players would be brought into Major League Baseball, the things that he had to put up with, which ultimately killed him at a relatively young age because of all the stress. Then you had guys like Jim Brown. I mean, Jim Brown, nobody told Jim Brown what to do. Of course, he played for the, for Syracuse in college, maybe the greatest lacrosse player, which a lot of people don't know, uh, ever. And he's in the lacrosse Hall of Fame. And then, of course, for the Cleveland Browns in the NFL, became the all-time leading rusher and then leveraged his career to begin to affect social change in the 70s, along with uh, a, a, a Muhammad Ali, who was, of course, loud and brash and, and was in a sport where it was just him in the ring. And, you know, he was a partner in that. And even bringing along a young Luau Sindor, uh, there was a, there's a great photograph that I still have in my collection that shows a, a day in the 70s when all of those athletes came together to help support, uh, I believe it was a, a boycott that was going on in in in, uh, in in Detroit, I believe it was. But they came together uh, at a time when you know, it was harder for them to do so. They didn't have guaranteed contracts. They didn't have social media platforms to leverage their voice. So I think athletes have always been at the forefront of change, even a, a Magic Johnson being, you know, when he was uh, afflicted with HIV, you know, became a spokesperson and really helped change the dialogue around HIV and AIDS. I mean, brought it, as I tell people, brought it out of the, the closet and put it on the kitchen table and forced us to have a different dialogue about about sex and unprotected sex and, and what that could do to us as a, as a community. So uh, I'm, I'm proud to see athletes today uh, take advantage of their platforms and utilizing their voice to lend support to the, uh, the, the ideas and ideals that still have to be fought for today. Uh, but they're not the first one. They stand on some shoulders of a, of a lot of people. Uh, Oscar Robertson, who, who fought for not just social change, but change and rights for, for athletes. People forget athletes didn't have a lot of rights back in those days. So I, I give athletes a lot of credit for being on the forefront of change for America for a long time. So let me ask you, though, you list these names that are names that are champions in social justice that were also extremely talented athletes, Hall of Famers, all of them. So but that's still just a handful. Do you think athletes have an actual responsibility uh, to speak up for social change? I know that was always a hot point, hot button topic with like a Michael Jordan, um, who was a superior athlete and personality and pitch man, but wasn't necessarily as vocal as some people felt he should have been. Should athletes feel like that is their responsibility for having the platform? Or is that just like all of us, you know, we all have the right to talk about what we do and do not talk about, but we tend to hold people to different standards based on their um, um, accessibility and visibility. So yes and yes. I, I believe that too much is given, much is expected. Any of us who has been blessed with an opportunity to have uh, a platform, to have some visibility, has an obligation to use that visibility to try to affect positive change, whether you're an athlete, whether you're an entertainer or a journalist or a business person. I think all of us come into this space with some responsibility to do something positive with the, the, the platforms and the power and the resources that we've been given. Saying all that, everybody has a choice. You got to make a personal choice on whether you are going to put yourself out there, whether you're going to be able to with 
withstand the criticism, uh, whether you're going to risk perhaps some of those resources uh, for something that you may or may not believe in totally. I mean, I, I, Michael Jordan could have done more. The choices he made, as he has said, were based on his own personal beliefs. Many people go back to uh, his his not supporting Harvey Gantt as potentially the first governor of North Carolina when he was from North Carolina. And he often says, I didn't really know Harvey. He didn't know Harvey Gantt. And, and yes, you know, people jump on the line where he says, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too. And it was a throwaway you know, callous line that he still lives with, as he talked about in Last Dance. But everybody's got to make that personal choice. Obviously, not every athlete in any sport has put themselves on the line to um, to, to to try to affect change. It generally is the most visible ones because they're not going to get cut. Nobody was going to cut Jim Brown. Nobody was right. going to to cut Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Nobody was going to cut LeBron James. So you, you can't expect them on that last guy on the bench. You know, he's hanging by a thread. So, you well, know, but how do you how do you how do you know that when you're a Colin Kaepernick? How do you know that they will cut you? Well, <laughs> in, 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 in the NFL, little, you know? Know, they didn't have guaranteed contracts. I mean, that's, you know, each of the sports have different types mm-hmm. of contracts. In the NBA, they had guaranteed contracts. So the chances are, particularly if you were a great player, you were just not going to get cut. You know, they might cut that last man on the bench. And if you look at somebody like Craig Hodges, who mm-hmm. was a talented player for the Chicago Bulls and other teams, one of the best three-point shooters in the history of the game, he endured some backlash because of his uh, stance, because of him going to the White House with the Bulls, uh, wearing the dashiki uh, and confronting the president. It actually gave the president a letter uh, asking him to address some issues of, uh, you know, some social inequities. We Today, we would think that was nothing. Right. Back in the 80s and 90s, that was sacrilege. And, and he essentially was blackballed. He was Kaepernick before Kaepernick. Uh, right, but I'm and, saying, but Kaepernick wasn't at the end of the bench. That's what I'm saying. I, I'm not even talking about the logistics of guaranteed contract and the different contracts contracts in sports. I mean, I feel like Kaepernick's gesture initially was based on him feeling, he, hey, I have a name, I have a platform, I'm the quarterback of God, you know, and it, it didn't turn out that way. Not even so much financially, well, I mean, but like even say, with another yeah. team or in the league. I haven't spoken oh, to Colin Kaepernick, so so it's hard to, to speak for him, but it, it certainly worked in the sense that he accomplished what he set out to do. He called mm-hmm. attention to uh, police brutality in a way that no other athlete has been able to do. It was certainly a cost for that. You know, it right. cost him millions of dollars. It cost him a job in the NFL, uh, you know, which clearly blackballed him. But he accomplished what he set out to do. He, he called mm-hmm. attention to injustice. He, he he made it a part of the discussion and he was willing to take that risk in order to, to do that. So I would say he accomplished exactly what he wanted to do. There was a risk. He accepted the risk. You know, we can all argue and say it's not fair, but he knew exactly what he was doing and what he was putting at risk. And he decided that it was more important for him to make that statement than it was just to preserve, uh, you know, his financial standing. And let's, and let's be clear, he's made a lot of money. So uh, I'm right, sure right. that... And that's what I'm saying. I'm Colin going to be all right. He's going to be all right. Right. Based on the, on the on what you were saying about those guys that weren't going to get cut, I think they did feel like I'm, I'm not going to get cut because I'm the quarterback. You know, I'm not on the bench. And so I'm going to speak up for the guys on the bench who might be talking to me, you know, about his brother that was killed. Okay, I'm the quarterback. I'm going to speak up. And so I don't think he calculated that risk of that level because <laughs> you're right. thinking I wasn't on the end of the bench guys like what do we talk I'm actually uh, you know a good football player um, so when you when we talk about uh, Colin Kaepernick and then other players who obviously supported vocally or just you know kneeled and, and the whole thing how it became obviously not what he was talking about you know kind of the, the movement was hijacked in a lot of different ways uh, when you when you answer that question that yes and yes uh, 
too too much is given, much is expected and required. How do you then um, address when people say "shut up and dribble"? That'll be the opposite of what you feel. I, I, you know, <laughs> let's start about let's let's start with the whole notion of people. You know, okay. we are in the we are in a in a space now where a tweet all of a sudden becomes validated as well. People are saying this is somebody with twelve followers who mm-hmm. you know tweets something, and and unfortunately, a lot of times us in the media take five of those and decide people are saying this. Right. Whereas before, that person could have been up in the stand saying shut up and dribble and nobody knew about it and nobody cared. So you know, unfortunately, that voice gets amplified because it's on Facebook or because it's on Twitter, even though everybody has a right to an opinion, but I don't have to listen to your opinion. I don't have to uh, to to accept your opinion and have it affect my behavior. Uh, mm-hmm. We clearly are in the most divisive times. I won't say most divisive because it's all relative, but we are in divisive times uh, and what Colin and others are doing enrage those uh, elements of fans who felt we just want to go to the games and we just want to watch you play and you know you shouldn't say that's the same people that tell me I shouldn't write about certain things I don't care I don't care what they say and the athletes who are doing what they do they don't care what they say uh, so you can't absorb every voice uh, particularly when it's an uninformed voice as a voice or a voice that just wants you to stay in your place well, right. no, my place, I decide what my place is not you and you decide whether you still want to buy a ticket or not you decide whether you still want to turn on your television or not I decide my place and not you so uh, the, the, the shut up and dribble movement I thought was partly a byproduct of, of where we are in the media uh, landscape because there is social media and any any voice no matter how ludicrous gets amplified uh, there's always been racist there's always people that didn't think any anybody should do anything but other than perform for them yeah. you don't decide my place I decide my place and there's been athletes for generations who uh, not listened to that noise there were, there were people who didn't think Jackie Robinson should have stood up and talked about black entrepreneurship and some of the things he did but he, that didn't stop him from doing you know, those voices don't don't decide my place uh, you know I do and those athletes decide for themselves and the, the racial bias involved with this shut up and dribble movement particularly from certain people and white people in the media would be they would say shut up and dribble to a LeBron James or, or a Colin Kaepernick but then if another white athlete said well I'm going to stand for the flag because then they want to use that quote and so now this is a valid comment and so it was pretty you know obvious <laughs> uh, and obnoxious the divide of oh but this athlete's opinion should be front page news but when the black athlete offers an opinion on the same subject he should just shut up and dribble there's still a racism breaking news why are we using this quote from this white athlete when you just said the black athlete is not allowed to have an opinion because he's rich he doesn't have black the news calls. there's there's racism in the media there's racism in the stands and uh, again because they've got the access to a tweet or a microphone, uh, they're going to express that opinion. So uh, I, yeah, none of this surprises me, nor should it surprise any of us. We we just can't. We have to, you know, it's like if you're a Star Trek fan, you know, you put up the shields and, and you don't allow those rocks, don't allow those uh, those attacks to penetrate uh, your your force field and, and prevent you from where you're trying to go. We've got a lot of things to do. We've got uh, some challenges that, that need to be confronted in this time and place. And those of us who want to be part of that are not going to be deterred by uh, naysayers. I mean, you know, I, 
I don't remember those times. But when I go to a Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, when I go to the Museum of Peace and Policy, which I call the Lynching Museum in Montgomery, <laughs> somebody trying to tell me to, to, to shut up and dribble or just, you know, shouldn't write about certain things compared to what my parents' generation went through, compared to people being killed because they registered to vote, compared to some of the things that still happen today, unfortunately, tragically. But compared to them, I, if I can't take a few a few uh, uh, darts being thrown my way, verbal darts, then I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. We shouldn't be doing what we what we're doing. So yeah, we we're okay. We're we were we were forged uh, and steeled to to be able to handle that. So I don't I don't allow myself to be deterred from from my mission, and I don't think they allow themselves to be deterred by to, to deterred by uh, an anonymous person, you know, telling them to just to shut up and perform for me. So tell me, since you've been in the media since well, like at least ten years before I was born, I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least. <laughs> at least, minimum, bare minimum. But um, as far as you mentioned social media, not just talking about social justice, I mean, sports and entertainment. Do you feel like the access that people have to the athletes, how many sports shows, everyone has content, do you feel like that has helped the, the world of athletics or do you feel like it has taken away some of the, uh, the I don't know, some of the mystery? We used to not know as much about the athletes we cheered on. And maybe that was a good thing in some cases. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I think transparency is good. You know, it is it is easier to see them more as human beings with with failings and, and flaws and, and challenges. We know more about what they have to deal with when they get home. You hear about athletes who have uh, relatives who died. We hear about athletes who may have stayed out too late. Who are you know we heard in the bubble people trying to sneak people into hotel rooms. I mean, they, those, those, the characters in the Bible were flawed too. So there's no reason that we shouldn't know more about the people that perhaps sometimes we give too much credit. We put on too high a pedestal because they're just human beings. And a lot of them are young human beings who just happen to be gifted athletically, uh, but still have the same flaws that the rest of us do. So I think it's humanized them to a, to a degree. It's made it a challenge for sports journalists because they used to need us to paint a broader picture of, of who they were, where they came from, what shaped them. You know, I can recall the day that Tiger Woods created TigerWoods.com. All of a sudden, he didn't need to talk to the media. Now they are their own Twitter accounts. They, there's a player's trip they don't need someone else to tell their story. Now, great storytellers will always find an opportunity to do so. Uh, but yes, it's kind of the wild west out there with, uh, with every athlete having access to a Twitter account or, or a Facebook page to be able to tell their stories. And that's good for them. Uh, a lot of our athletes now, young athletes, learn to express themselves at a younger age because they have to. Now, it's, it's also, you know, there's some treacherous things out there and they know that you tweet a certain thing that could hurt you for your entire career. But, you know, now that there's no excuse for not knowing that. So I've seen athletes who are much more polished in terms of speaking to you know television and radio reporters as high schoolers than they were 20 years ago because they've been doing it. Some of them since elementary <laughs> elementary school and middle school. So uh, there's there's pluses and, mi- and minuses. There's going to be uh, times when athletes make mistakes when they they are exposed for things that athletes two generations ago would have gotten away with. No questions asked. We absolutely know that the reporters who covered Major League Baseball uh, in the third. 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s turned a blind eye to a lot of things that we're seeing, whether it's baseball, NFL. Uh, there's no question about that. Now, you know, every, everything, you're on all the time. You're, you are scrutinized from the moment you get out of bed, walk out your door to the moment that you uh, you get back home, and then even sometimes beyond that. So, uh, all in all, I think it's a good thing. The athletes have an opportunity to express themselves in their own way, uh, but sometimes you need you want to put your hand over your eyes and your ears, because no matter what you're going to see. But I can't 
imagine. I can't imagine you even thinking about putting your hands over your eyes and your ears when one one athlete from back in the day would always say famously that you worked with. I am not a role model, <laughs> Charles right. Mark, and uh, you, wrote, you wrote a book with him. But it's one of those things where it's always been this idea that we glorify these gladiators, but they often are some of the most flawed people that you co- could come across because of a lot of different elements that they experience that so-called regular people don't experience. Uh, I mean, in in my past and working with athletes, you'd be amazed at all the demons that regular people don't even get introduced to. <laughs> oh, <absolutely>. like, <laughs> you know, it's a different animal out there. And so, yeah, they you would think people know what not to tweet and then yet and still... <laughs> Step away from the sin button. Please step, step, step away. away. <laughs> so I don't know how many athletes or former athletes or professional athletes might be listening to this particular episode of the History of Being Black. Like, but we do like to end every episode with a call to action for our listeners. So I don't want you to feel like you have to be limited to our topic today as far as hashtag be the change. What could someone listening today, we were talking about the responsibility and the platform um, for all of us. You know, the more, the more of uh, accessibility and visibility that you have, have, the more you have a voice for people who don't have a voice. But what could just somebody who's just checking out the History of Being Black podcast do in order to hashtag be the change? Take advantage of your stage to tell your story, to create your own narrative, and resist the forces that might have you measure yourself against someone else's social media page, someone else's Instagram page. Write your own narrative and utilize it to try to affect positive change for yourself for your family, for your friends, uh, and, and if possible, for, for society at large. I'm with it. Let's do it. Let's go. Right. <laughs> if you got a Facebook page, uh, that's what I guess the, the kids don't, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok. TikTok, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tell the story in a positive way that when people come up, they say, oh, wow, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a real testament to his community, that person right there. And whatever it is, it's different for everybody. Have, if you're doing it right, it shouldn't look like anything you've ever seen before. Uh, Ray S. Johnson, um, y'all just Google him. I don't, I don't like reading my friends' bios because then they start thinking they, they, they better than me and shouldn't be my friends. So that's why I really <laughs> didn't go out with him. So y'all can Google him, follow him on all social media. What's the best way to follow you on social media? At Roy S. J. R. O. Y. S. J. On Instagram and Twitter. Sounds good. Thank you so much again for gracing us with your uh, expertise and depth of knowledge on all things, especially regarding Black folks. Hopefully, you'll come back and visit us. And don't forget, you can. Also, listen to Roy's podcast, uh, Unjustifiable, on Reckon Radio and other podcast outlets. So, I'm inspired. I'm ready to be the change. I got a Facebook post I'm about to do right after we finish this. So, thank you again, Roy, for joining us. Thank you again for listening. And we will see you next time on the next episode of The History of Being Black. Take care. Bye bye. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott, associate producer Lauren Turner, edited by Ken Johnson. Executive Producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean Old Lion and Say It Loud Network production. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.